I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go ahead and study God's Word together. Father, thank you for a great morning. Thank you for a great reminder, even in song, about what matters ultimately uh, and most. And we're thankful for our Savior, Jesus. We're thankful that the Bible says that we can not only know Him, but we're known by Him in a, in a positive way as our spiritual elder brother and as our great Savior. Thank you for uh, Emmett this morning, that you allowed him to come and his health is good enough that he could worship together with us. We're thankful. We're thankful for the body of Christ and all of its diversity and the different kinds of relationships that we share and how we're one in Christ ultimately. And we find the same great joy in Jesus, our Savior. May it be so today as we hear from him uh, in his word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to the 16th chapter of the Gospel according to John. So it's the good news about Jesus according to John the Apostle. We'll be in the 16th chapter. It's no news to you or me that heartache and heartbreak fill our lives and fill our world. It's something we don't like and... uh, I would venture to guess when it comes to talking about heartache and heartbreak that fills our lives and fills our world, not only do we not like it, but I imagine you don't like to hear about it. I don't like to hear about it. Um, Surveys would show us people don't like to hear about it when they come to church. And so I've not done a very good job of marketing so far. Um, We're going to talk about heartache and heartbreak because it's true and real. It might not sell, but it is what we experience all of the time. And a false religious leader will tell you that it's make-believe, or tell you to ignore it, or tell you everything's going to be fine. But Jesus, who is the truth himself, only ever speaks the truth. And Jesus loves us. He loved his original disciples and he loves us. And so he speaks the truth to us about our circumstances and about the hardships and the heartaches that fill our world. Not only in general, but even fill our world as believers because there's actually something even worse and that's hostility against us because of our association with Jesus. And so, again, I acknowledge you probably didn't come here this morning wanting to hear about bad things. But we are going to hear about the truth, and it's going to be from Jesus, okay? Jesus is getting ready to say his final goodbyes, if you will, before he is taken to the cross, before he is beaten, before he is disrespected, before he is insulted, before he faces the worst of humanity before he is crucified, before he dies and gives up his last breath. And as he prepares the disciples in chapter 14, in chapter 15, in chapter 16, his original 11, and us by extension, one thing he keeps emphasizing is the fact that it's not going to be good. And it's going to be even worse because of your association with him. And yet, he tells the truth, mixed in and so importantly emphasized 
is the fact that as a believer in Christ, you have something greater that transcends all of it. And it's not make-believe. It's real. And it's tangible. It's as real as he will be raised again bodily from the dead. And so it's the true source of joy for them. It's the true source of joy for us. It transcends. It's bigger. It's beyond the enjoyable. Because ultimately, in the end, reality says it ends well for you. So it's about perspective, okay? And he's going to hit that chord yet again. So apparently we need this chord. We're going to end chapter 16 this morning, and next week we'll look at chapter 17, which is his high priestly prayer. But again, this morning we're going to get yet another dose of joy found in the resurrected Christ, not in our here and now lives, ultimately. So, beginning in verse 16, if you would join me in looking at verse 16, we'll go 16 to 33, and we'll be encouraged by truthfulness and joy found in Christ. Ready? Here we go. Jesus says in verse 16, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. If it sounds a little bit cloaked, it seems, based on what we're going to read, it's meant to be. Now, we live on the other side of things, and so we understand, we, we understand, lots of us do, what he's getting at, right? But if you don't quite understand, the disciples didn't understand either. So verse 17 says, So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us a little while and you will see me, you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? And, reaching back further into chapter 16, because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. So if you're here this morning and you think, I don't know what he was talking about, you're in good company. But a lot of you do understand, because you know how it ends, and you know how it plays itself out. Jesus responds then in verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. I wrote in my margin, as always. Jesus always knows. Jesus is God. Jesus knows what's on their mind before they even ask. So Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me? And again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, so earnestly, earnestly, sober-mindedly, sober-mindedly, importantly, importantly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. That's funeral talk in the Middle East first century. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. You won't see me because I'm going to be what? I'm going to be crucified in a little while. You won't see me because I'm going to be crucified. 
and you are going to lament and show extreme sorrow, weeping, crying out, wailing. It's funeral stuff. It'll be terrible. The one that you love so much and the one who loved you so much, the one who is the way and the truth and the life, it's going to be horrific what's about ready to happen. Then the other side of it, you will see me again because he's going to make it explicit as he has. I'll be raised. So you're, in a little while you're not going to see me and then you're going to see me because he's going to be raised from the dead. And because of his resurrection, notice at the end, your sorrow will turn into joy. Crucified, lamenting. Resurrected, joy and rejoicing. Super simple, I know. Straightforward. These disciples, though, they're still trying to get their mind around this whole thing. He's Messiah. He's the promised, anointed, long-awaited king from all the Old Testament. He's leaving? Then he's coming back, crucified, lamenting. We have the benefit of a lot of water under the bridge, but they don't. Please also notice in verse 20 that the very thing that will bring great sorrow to disciples who believe the truth about Jesus is the very same thing that will bring rejoicing to the unbeliever. The world will rejoice. So what you think will be the absolute worst thing to ever happen, oh, by the way, it will be will be the very thing that the unbelieving world will love. You're going to love seeing me again resurrected, Jesus is saying, in a similar way that they're going to love seeing me crucified. And it would be good for us to stop and recognize, even though we don't like to hear this, even though we can't quite get our minds around it, it would be good for us to stop and recognize that Jesus is teaching His crucifixion, crucifixion will make the world, the unbelieving world, happy. And so it should come to us as no surprise when people who are unbelievers like wrong things and wrong perverse things like crucifying the Messiah, the ultimate wrong and perverse thing, if that brings them joy and happiness, and this is wonderful, it helps me and it should help you to realize why so many times the unbelieving world is so perverse and twisted and upside down on lesser things. As unreasonable as it is. Think about this. From a Christian perspective, what's about to happen with Jesus, what has happened to Jesus, has not been irrational. Okay? Christianity, again, is supernatural, but it, it's not irrational. Okay? In Christianity, we don't have, like I like to say all the time, faith in faith. It's not faith in the non-historic. Faith in things that are imagination. So far, everything in this gospel account, all four gospel accounts, go out of their way to talk about history, to talk about real life, to talk about 
incarnation. John is going to say in his next letter that we touched him with our hands handled. We saw him. Christianity is not irrational. It's supernatural, but it's not irrational. I'm not saying you should be a Christian. Just believe in things that never happened. As long as you're sincere. That's never, ever, ever what the Bible was presenting. John isn't presenting that. Christians ought not be presenting that. Faith is where you turn your mind off and believe in nothing. No, it's where you trust in the historic, actual one who came here. Okay, rational. Let's talk about irrational. Irrational is he comes, he does everything right, he answers all of the questions like no one has ever asked the questions. He does supernatural things that are objective and tangible. They don't just happen in people's imaginations and hearts. Irrational is to say, let's kill him. We've got to remember, the very thing that is horrific dastardly, blasphemous, horrific, perverse, sinister, you name it, nonsensical, irrational, mindless, perverse, causes the world, Jesus says, to be happy. I'm making a big deal out of this because I need to remember this for what happened at the cross and for what happens every single day in the world we live in. Sin is irrational. And we see this sin is irrational. The ultimate sin, it's no wonder that sin is irrational in the day that we live in. Lesser sins, if you will. But let's remember... This is the background we all come from. So if we remember that, that we're not good people that Jesus came for, but we're hostile, we're unbelievers, as Colossians says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and then he goes on to talk talk about how we became Christians, yet doing evil deeds and thinking they're good. Oh, yes. Crucifying the Messiah. That's the background we come out of, a perverse background. And God saves us by His grace and according to His mercy. It's really good to remember that so that you can be merciful to people and you can love your enemies. Christ is going to love His enemies even by going to the cross. We have to remember that. But I do like reminding you that when you see perversity being applauded, you're not the crazy one. We see it here from Jesus. He's reminding his disciples, if you will, you're not the crazy ones. Here's what's going to happen. Unthinkable, unimaginable. And God is going to use the ultimate bad for ultimate good. Let's now have an illustration to lighten the tone a little bit. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, 
she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And then comes one of the greatest promises you will ever hear. Verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts. Notice, I will see you again, not in your heart. I will see you again. He's talking about reality. And your hearts, your innermost being, will rejoice. And how about this? And no one will take your joy from you. I absolutely love saying that, hearing that, reading that. No one will take your joy from you. He's already made it clear you're going to be put out of the synagogue. They hated me. They're going to hate you. Hostility, the the burner of hostility is going to be turned up. But he makes the promise to them, you're going to have joy when you see me and no one can take that joy away from you. Again, circumstances, circumstances not enjoyable. And you can have a joy, this, let's call it a a supernatural inner, it's in your heart, can't be removed from you in the innermost part of your being, kind of mindset, happiness, extraordinary kind of joy that is unstealable, safe. How about this? Let me ask you this question. What's it based on in our verse? What's it tied to? You are going to have this inner... Happiness just seems trite, but it's, it's the idea, right? Of this inner sort of happiness, this joy, joy is a better word, but this, this, this extraordinary thing that can't be taken from you, and, and, and it can't be taken from you, but, but it's based upon what? It's based upon Christ... But do notice, and some of you are saying this, I will see you again. Based upon I will see you again, no one will take your joy from you. You see? They're going to see him again because he's going to what? He's going to be resurrected from the dead bodily. Because they see the resurrected Jesus, that creates something for them to their benefit that will cause an extraordinary kind of joy that can't be taken away. How about this? As sure as he's bodily raised from the dead, as sure as that has happened, to never die again, that causes something in the believer that can't be taken away, that transcends any and all circumstances amidst a hard life. It's so important. It's so critical and vital. We have lesser joys, and let's be thankful. I'm thankful for the joy of family. I'm thankful for the joy of friendship. I'm thankful for the joy of a local church that I love. I'm thankful for for the fellowship there. I'm thankful for health. I'm thankful for fitness. I'm thankful for hobbies. I'm thankful for sports. All of these things give me a certain kind of joy on different kinds of levels. Different things cause us to tick differently. I get that. But, But there are lots of good things in life. There are many kinds of joys. 
and they can all be taken away. And in, in one sense, on one level, they all will be taken away. But because Jesus is raised from the dead bodily to the point where they see him and then their eyewitnesses, historic eyewitnesses, there's a kind of joy that can't be taken away. And I want you to know that probably more than just about anything else in the whole world. The ultimate peace, the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate happiness is tied to a resurrected Jesus. And we could go deeper in this, and he's talked about these things, because not only does it mean he's resurrected, and isn't, isn't it great that our friend and provider isn't dead anymore, and so we're actually part of the right religion, not part of the wrong religion, but there's also the reality, and he's going to get into it, his resurrection, re- resurrection what? It's our resurrection. Because he's been raised, God is pleased with him, he's been vindicated. He's the one who can provide justification that God would accept us. And so when the world is against you and people you thought were your friends are against you, guess what? I, 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 because I am here, I came back, I was raised from the dead, you have something no one will take from you. This is so good. First John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. The fact that He's been raised from the dead, even people who weren't eyewitnesses are promised to one day see Him and to be made like Him. Accepted by God, resurrected, glorified. See, what I'm not going to do this morning is say everything's going to be wonderful if you just have a positive attitude. It's just all in how you look at things. And if you just have strong enough faith, God is going to make you healthy or He's going to make you rich. And you're going to have a perfect family and everything's, everybody's going to do the right thing all the time as long as you do all these things. I'm not going to tell you that because it's not true. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus says. Salvation isn't happening ultimately in the here and now, although we are saved in the here and now. What we will be has not appeared yet, but it's tied to Him being resurrected. It's actually what makes us better people in the here and now. We can, we can even have a sense of level-headedness, stability, steadfastness, because I have a joy inside of me that you can't take and nothing can take it away from me which, by the way, could cause you to then be merciful and kind and gracious and long-suffering. This this is exceptional stuff. If you want to pray for me, you could pray for me that Pat would have a better grasp on having a joy that no one can take away from him. If, If I could just grasp that and own that amidst the lesser joys... Okay, a joy that no one can take away from you. A joy that no, no one can take away this joy. I, I don't think I get that. I don't think I live in that world. 
And that's how I could pray for you as well. If you don't know how to pray for somebody, at least that we would live in, in more and more as we grow spiritually, that we understand and own the reality amidst the difficult stuff. Help her or him understand and grow in the knowledge of the fact that because of Jesus Christ, there is a joy that we have that can't be taken away. I need help with that. One more thing before we move on to to, to fill this richness in a little bit. And that's with Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice regarding the new covenant, okay? We've got old covenant world passing away, temple, sacrifice, priests, and Jesus is going to be the high priest. He's going to be the one that we've been waiting for. Everything changes, extraordinary, the time we've all been waiting for, even from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament where the new covenant is anticipated and spoken of and, and looked to, It's specifically described in an extraordinary way as a time of rejoicing and joy like we've never, ever been able to experience before. And so, though he doesn't say, and I'm talking about new covenant realities. He's talking about new covenant realities. Jeremiah 31.13, the classic chapter on the new covenant. Jeremiah 31.13, Then shall the young women rejoice... I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. Like never before. Isaiah 61, to comfort all who mourn the oil of gladness instead of mourning. This is New Covenant stuff. He's the one. And so when we say and hear Jesus say, this is the New Covenant in my blood, when we remember Jesus, yeah, He's the one who brings an extraordinary, exceptional, un Take awayable. I lost words. <laughs> kind of joy. Because he's the one. Ha! We've been waiting for. Even if we didn't know we were waiting for him. He's that one. Okay, let's keep going now. How about verse 23? If we go back to, to John chapter 16, verse 23. In that day, the day when Christ is resurrected, it would seem best to say, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Kind of a weird verse out of context, but here's why. You'll ask nothing of me. How about verse 23? Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He will give it to you. See, something something radical is happening. They've been coming to Jesus, asking Jesus, but because of the reconciling work of Jesus, because of what He's going to accomplish through His once and for all sacrifice, there's going to be a new kind of experience that they can have with the Father. Whatever you ask of the Father in My name, He will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in My name? Ask! Literally, ask and keep on asking. This is just your new pattern. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. 
This is, this is unique relationship talk. This is mediator kind of talk. This is because of the finality of Jesus' work, because it's successful. It hasn't even happened yet, by the way. And Jesus already knows it's going to be successful because he knows who he is and he knows he's going to succeed. And so that time is coming when you are going to enjoy a relationship with God like Old Testament saints even hadn't experienced. Temple, priests, sacrifices. No. <laughs> things are, things are a-changing. This is what we've been waiting for. This is unique. Again, we read it and might not think that big of a deal out of it, but when we're realizing these are, these are Jewish individuals, things are about to change. And you will receive that your joy may be full. This joy that comes from a unique relationship with God because of a perfect mediator, Jesus, whose work is accomplished and complete. I hear parents say, if you're a parent, you've said, or you can understand it, even if you've never been a parent, there isn't anything I wouldn't do for my kids. I would do anything for my kids. That's the heart of a parent, even if the parent, in some circumstances, can't. There isn't anything people wouldn't do for their kids. Things they don't, won't do for themselves, they'll do for their kids. Now I'm off track, but you get the idea. Now we can personalize God is our Father. And as our Father, there isn't anything He wouldn't do for us. Because we're no longer hostile, alienated against Him. We're, we're His children because of the work of Jesus. And so we ask, and, and we ask expecting Him to give us whatever we need. That's the idea. The idea, by the way, isn't that He's some kind of, you know, genie in a bottle that we just ask for anything. My kids, I'll give them anything that I think they should have. <laughs> right? My, my, my younger ones that are hearing me say, when I say there isn't anything I would do for my kids, they're like, liar. <laughs> there are plenty of things I wouldn't do for my kids. If there are things that they shouldn't have that aren't the best for them, but the idea is clear and straightforward what Jesus is getting at. He's your Father. And so you just ask. You ask with confidence. Because of what I'm going to do. More about this in a couple of verses. Let's keep going. How about verse 25? I have said these things to you in figures of speech. So again, if you found our opening verse, was it 15 or 16, to be a little bit puzzling? Well, that, that's not strange. I have said these things to you in figures of speech, kind of cloaked. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Oh, that, that, that's... that's that's really good, by the way. You, you, don't, you don't have to ask me to go ask the Father. For the Father Himself loves you. you. You can just ask Him. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. 
He's not denying his own mediatorship. He wouldn't be doing that. But the reality is because Jesus is the mediator, because he's reconciled us to God through his substitutionary atonement, you just go to God. Well, well, uh, uh, uh. We all could use a better dose of fear of God, by the way. But, but one, let's assume we have that. It'd be like, um, well, uh, um, what about the priest and what about, you know. Jesus is saying, He loves you. The Father loves you. Like a father loves a child, the Father loves you. You just ask. And I want it to only be positive, but just on the negative side for a second, so much for all of the other kind of mediators. I mean, in a certain sense, don't quote me out of context, Jesus is saying, you don't need me to mediate prayer. Let's assume you certainly don't need to go to all these other places. Are you kidding me? Because of what I'm doing, Jesus is saying, because of what I'm going to accomplish and it will be done, you just go to God. In my name, yes, but you go to God. Well, how, how, could, how could we do this? He loves you. That's meant to be assuring. It's not presumptive to, to, to have assurance. It's not sinful to have assurance. Assurance is part of what it means to be a Christian. It's part of the fiber of what it means to be a Christian because you're, you're in Christ. You're united to Christ. And His work is done. And so you just ask because God loves you. Don't misunderstand. I'm not saying you don't need Jesus. In one sense, I just want to read what what he says. For the Father himself loves you. You can also pray for me that I would get that. I could pray for you that you would get that. What a kind of joy that brings. And I can just hear the debate that would happen. Who do you think you are? That's like ultimate presumption. Not to mention ultimate arrogance. That pushback ignores one great glaring reality. And it's the pleasing work of the Son that's going to be a completed work in just a short time from what we're reading. And the Father's pleased with the Son. And we're united to the Son, and so it's not presumptuous and it's not arrogant. As a matter of fact, it would be arrogant for religious teachers to tell people that they can't have assurance. The Father loves you. Resurrection is proof that all of this is true. How about comforting people with that? In context, right? This is, by the way, this is not some kind of cheap love that's pseudo, not even real love. It's okay because God loves you. I'll send you my thoughts. In the big picture of things, it's going to be okay. 
because the Father loves you. And on kind of context, man, I want you to tell me that. Notice, because you've believed. I love this. Twenty-eight says, "I came from the Father, and I have come into the world." Once again, how could we know Jesus is telling the truth? How can we know these things? I came from the. I came from Him. I came from the Father and have come into the world. That's an exceptional reality. We learned about it in chapter 1. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Also an exceptional reality. Given the fact that he's about to be brutally murdered by death experts. But I'm going to the Father. See, victory is already built in. 29, his disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. I love the boldness. I love the confidence. They're starting to put the pieces together. I like it that God's been patient with them because they've come to so many wrong conclusions. And now they're saying, ah, it's all coming together. We get it. And then I also like it that Jesus is not altogether trusting of their bold assertions. And he still loves them. And the Father still loves them. Because, go on to read verse 31, Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? See, they just said, We, we don't need anything else. We're in. We believe. We're committed. And Jesus says, Do you now believe? And I think it's meant to be read like that. I'll show you why. Do you now believe? 32, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Your, your, your faith is not as strong as you think it is, is what Jesus is telling his disciples. But I love it. He doesn't say, and so because your faith isn't as strong as it should be, just know one thing, you shouldn't have assurance and you shouldn't ever think that the Father loves you. Nope doesn't do that. doesn't do that. 32 says, yet I'm not alone. They're going to abandon him. They're going to scatter. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And we're going to learn about that in chapter 17 with some depth of just the unique relationship between the Father and the Son and the basis then for our relationship with God as well. But notice his confidence. This is a God-ordained thing. 33 says, I have said these things to you that in me, right, united to me, you may have peace. I'm going to mentally remind you to go back in your mind to chapter 15 where Jesus says, I'm the vine, right? I'm the true vine, the source of life. You, want, you, you, you need to be united to me. When the pressure comes, don't leave because then you don't have life anymore. I'm the true vine. You've got to stay attached to me. And so where he says, I have said these things to you that in me, united to me, you may have peace. And it seems like he's using peace synonymously, at least on one level, with joy. 
because he's not talking about this, this uh, positional peace that we have with God, that's true. But because of the work of Jesus, we have positional peace with God. We're no longer at war with him and he's no longer at war with us. There's been reconciliation. But here it doesn't seem to be talking about that. That's a must. But here he's saying, you will, in me, united to me, you will have peace. Seems to be more on a psychological level, right? The, the, the innermost being joy kind of reality supernatural kind of peace and happiness because they won't have peace on a relational level with the Jewish authorities or the Roman authorities or even on the family level of things, the religious level of things, but he's saying, in me, you'll have peace. You'll have joy. Ultimately, it's going to be okay. And then our final verse. Second part of 33. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. I don't know what else to say. Conflict awaits. I've overcome the source of conflict. I have overcome the world. I love what the Apostle Paul says regarding this. In Romans chapter 8, verse 37. No, in all these things, all these kinds of conflicts, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. He's saying the same thing from a little bit different angle. Jesus says, I've overcome the world. Oh, by the way, he hasn't even gone to the cross yet. He must, but it's as good as done. Resurrection is as good as done. I have overcome the world. It's in in anticipation. I am the overcomer. In me, you'll have peace. Yeah, because if you're united to Christ by faith, You too, the Apostle Paul says, we're more than conquerors. We're more than overcomers. We too are. Why? Because we're so awesome? No. But because we're in Him, we're united to Him by faith. Nikao. Overcomer, where we get Nike. Maybe this is just for my boys, I don't know. Nike, overcomer, victor. Jesus isn't using Latin, he's using Greek, but it comes from the same background. Nikao, overcomer, victor. I am the champion. And if you believe in me, you are, I think it's huper nikao, more than victors. Super abundant, conquering victors because of my victory over sin and death. Pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. Christianity 101. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be a huper nike, super conqueror. Not because of your talents, abilities, powers, religious affluence, but because of someone else. His name is Jesus. And we know he overcame because he was raised from the dead. We should pray.
Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a great Savior whose name is Jesus. May our boast not be in ourselves, but may our boasting be found only in him. We are grateful that you are a God who forgives. You are a God who reconciles. You are a God who brings positional peace and psychological peace, supernatural joy that can't be taken away. And we are so thankful. May we now want to live lives that honor you that don't dishonor you, but please you, that we would live like true human beings, loving you and loving our neighbors. And certainly now we have the ability to do that by the power of the indwelling spirit. May we make much of you, even by our testimonies. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.